Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac. I know I say this every interview, but we have a really, really special one today. Last week, we had talked about the traditional practice of Vrikshire Veda and how the fundamentals of this practice have been making a comeback in Southern Asia. Well, today we're talking with one of the primary voices in making that change a reality, Vijay Kumar Thalam, who is the executive vice chairman of the Indian nonprofit Raitu Sadikara Samsa, which focuses on organic agriculture and is an advisor on agriculture and cooperation to the state government of Andhra Pradesh. For those not familiar with Andhra Pradesh, it's a state in India with nearly 50 million inhabitants. During the past five years, he has led a movement for climate-resilient, community-managed natural farming, also known as zero-budget natural farming. In 2020, it was renamed as Andhra Pradesh Community-Managed Natural Farming. Thalm has been appointed as the vice chair of the Champions Network for the UN Food Systems Summit as well during this work. Also, during his period of managing this, Almost a million farmers have moved towards a natural farming method using biostimulants and fermented byproducts for farming at scale, without subsidies. And framing up all this work is his record of 10 years as the CEO of the Society for Elimination of Rural Poverty in Andhra Pradesh and led the mobilization and empowerment of 11.5 million rural poor women into thrift and credit-based self-help groups so they could move out of poverty. We chat extensively about how these two, on the surface, completely separate projects, are actually part of one cohesive strategy to build resilient, bottom-up solutions to the problems of petrochemical agriculture. This was a really exciting and inspiring conversation, and we'll be having a follow-up from this interview with some special guests and even a special host. So please tune in and let us know what you think. Vijay, thanks so much for coming on. Could you please introduce yourself and uh, some of the work that you've been involved with? I'm uh, Vijay Kumar Tallam. You can call me Vijay. So I head the Natural Farming Program Initiative of Government of Andhra Pradesh, India. Yeah. I head the organization called Raitu Sadekara Samastha, Farmers Empowerment Organization. It is set up by the government of Andhra Pradesh. Andhra Pradesh is a state in the uh, southern part of India. It has a population of 54 million. It has a very long coast, almost 1,000 kilometers of coast. And we also have a large uh, semi-arid area. So we have both the coast, we have the hills, and we have uh, semi-arid areas in the south and southwest part of the state. The vision of government of Andhra Pradesh and my organization is that 6 million farmers in Andhra Pradesh cultivating 6 million hectares. It's one hectare per farmer on an average. So all of them should transform to natural farming. That is, without chemicals, also called regenerative agriculture in some areas, also called agroecology. So it is farming without any chemicals without any synthetic chemicals, farming in harmony with nature, mimicking the principles, laws of nature, so that uh, farmers are able to 
have good livelihoods, produce more crops, more diverse crops produced throughout the year. And the consumers get good quality, more nutritious, nutrition-dense, safe food. But more important is, as a in the process of uh, production of food, we're also improving the landscape. So regeneration of soils, enhancing the soil organic matter, reducing the water you know, consumed, then promoting biodiversity, reducing pollution. So there are a lot of uh, environmental benefits out of this process of producing food. Yeah. Now, you know, what's amazing is how large of an area you're talking about. I think when most people talk about like regenerative agriculture, uh, we envision it as this thing that, it, you know, a large scale might be a couple thousand acres and you guys are just, you know, in order of magnitude above that. And that's just surreal to try to imagine. What has been the feedback from people, the farmers themselves, in terms of making this transition? Has it been primarily people in support of it? Uh, we started this uh, program in 2016. And this was mainly at that time. It was meant to uh, you know, reduce farmers' distress because farmers were suffering and continue to suffer from uh, high costs of uh, purchased uh, fertilizers, pesticides, you know, the kind of electricity that is required for pumping water. So they require it in large quantities. So those costs are going up. So on one hand, and this is an experience all over the world, farmers' costs are increasing and uh, production of food has become risky. Because, uh, you know, the it may rain too much or it may not rain at all. Or uh, it, there may be a prolonged dry spell. So this weather uncertainty has been affecting uh, farmers' uh, production. So what is certain is that the costs are increasing. What is not certain is what the farmer is getting out of it. So it's like a gamble and where the odds are increasing every year. We can't even say what will happen after five years or even 10 years. As it is, it is so risky. And with uh, climate change, global warming, things are uh, going to, the costs are going to increase, the risks are going to increase. And uh, at that time, we we didn't envisage the kind of crisis that is there in, uh, you know, Russia, Ukraine war. So the fertilizer supply chain crisis, so which is uh, making fertilizers availability, the synthetic fertilizers availability, so difficult. So the farmers, when we went to the farmers, the farmers were in distress. They were looking at alternatives. But over the last 50 years, 60 years, they have been brainwashed into thinking that there is no other option. So you have to, you know, you can't produce food without chemicals. So the farmers had been convinced, I would say brainwashed, by all of us, you know, the agriculture department, the scientists, the commercial interests, saying that there is no other way of producing more and there's no other way of making more money other than putting more inputs. It does, uh, you know, the farmers were caught in a uh, vicious cycle and we went to them saying that, uh, would you like to try another approach? And uh, they were receptive. That's awesome. 
yes and uh, basically the reason for the why the farmers were receptive also there is a i have to go you know back a little more in in the year 2000 government of andhra pradesh worked on a program called uh, women empowerment so rural women rural poor women so we set about organizing them into collectives so they are called women self help groups so thrift and credit groups and by organizing them building their capacities building their uh, you know solidarity we were able to enable them to access micro loans from the banks so which improved their livelihoods and uh, also they were able to this improved their agency the agency of women to deal with various issues affecting uh, the household and within the household also so so it's about 20 years ago and uh, we had succeeded in organizing around 90% women in the rural areas so in andhra pradesh we already have around uh, 8.3 million women who are organized into self help groups they have federation of uh, self help groups at the village level so that all the women have a forum there is a platform so 200 women 300 women in a village there is a platform which addresses their livelihoods concerns addresses their issues with the local government addresses their uh, you know health issues education issues so it's a very powerful voice in the at the uh, village level so way back in 2004 i was all heading that program also i was heading that program for 10 years so uh, the women way back in 2004 so they told me that our cost of cultivation are going up can you do something can is there any technology so way back in 2004 we were able to put together a package of practices which are which is called non chemical pest management so we were able to give them a technology methodology to tackle pests without using chemicals and that was very successful it spread from one village to another so given this background when we went back to the farmer saying that you know there is an alternative method would you like to try and they were very responsive the of course before i started the program you know i based on my long experience i arrived at a you know some kind of a draft plan of how we are going to take it to farmers and we had a lot of brainstorming i still remember a four days brainstorming with uh, farmers with uh, you know civil society organizations also with my agriculture colleagues and also with agriculture scientists so i asked told them that i am convinced that natural farming is the best way to move forward and given our earlier experience of organizing women and introducing a chemical free program way back in 2004 so i think this is the way we should go about it and uh, we you know had a brainstorming session for brainstorming workshop for four days so on the final day we you know we had a lot of group discussions different groups came up with recommendations and uh, we were able to resolve many of them and i said remaining will get solved during implementation but one common uh, plea by everybody was that 
you know, with this uh, technology, yields may go down. So we have to compensate the farmers for reduction in the yields. Otherwise, why will farmers believe us? So normally, I, I know I go by what the team says. But uh, here I said, no, we will not compensate. If our technology is good, the yields will not go down. If we don't have belief in the technology, then we should not take the program forward. So when we go to the farmers, if they have one hectare of land, we'll ask them to try it only in one-fourth. Let them satisfy themselves that this technology works, it reduces their costs, it improves their yields, it improves their soil. If we start saying that we'll compensate you if you incur a loss, then which farmer will show higher income or higher yields? So that was one very important decision I took, that uh, which went against the recommendations of the team. But I felt that if we don't do this, then uh, you know tomorrow if my staff don't uh, or we are not innovative enough, or we may relax saying that okay if the yields go down we have to compensate them, and being a government program, it is easy for uh, you know freeloaders etc to sort of manipulate these figures. And uh, so that was one very important decision I took that uh, we don't uh, you know, give any compensation if the yields go down. So in 2016, the first year of the program, we enrolled 40,000 farmers from 700 villages to try it out. In 2022, from 40,000 farmers, the program had increased to 630,000 farmers. So it's going well. <laughs> yeah, so 16 times this number in just six years. Of course, we have a long way to go, but we have achieved a tipping point. We have covered around 10% of farmers are enrolled. They are participating in the program. And because of their success, it is spreading you know, on its own. Yeah, that man, you you brought up so many things I want to talk about. Um, so I, I do want to backtrack a little bit to these um, women-led collectives. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think that all of this kind of organizes around, at least from an outsider's perspective, is that a lot of this is framed in traditional practices, right? Whether it's uh, Frickshire Veda or other natural farming methods. Right. Was this idea of uh, women-led collectives also framed in a historical precedent? Uh, no, because, uh, you know, in a typically patriarchal society. Okay. So there's no historical precedent for this. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't sure if maybe like uh, pre-colonization uh, or anything, if there had been some uh, context in which that might have existed. This is a real revolution in terms of women first, women's agency being uh, enhanced, and unleashing the power of women. How can you have 50% of the society not being, uh, not uh, voicing their opinions or uh, not having the same opportunities? So we, because of our long experience of working with the women collective, now 22 years since I've been uh, involved in this, there is so much potential and the results are results on ground are incredible in terms of the farming side of things 
Yeah. Was there support because of that historical context of how lands had been stewarded in the past? And if that had any impact on people's, or in your opinion, I guess, had any impact on how people were willing to accept it as, hey, we know this has worked in the past. We're just updating the technologies and the resources for that. Okay. It's a interesting point that you've raised. It is rooted in our tradition. But it is not a traditional practice. Okay. You see, the methodology that we are using, the technology that we are using, is rooted in modern science. In fact, this, I believe, is the future of agriculture everywhere, not just in India. But there are elements which are very much part of our tradition and our culture. So you are right that because it has uh, a linkage with our tradition, uh, it was easier to for the people to accept it. But then if the results are not there, then uh, they won't accept it. So for instance, in the past, in uh, let us say 60 years ago, 70 years ago, before the synthetic uh, fertilizers were there, the amount of organic manure that was required for instance, the cow dung or uh, compost that was required was very large quantities, about 15 tons per acre. You know, that means only those better off people can do agriculture. Majority of the people will not be able to afford that kind of cattle population. In the present methodology that we are adopting, we require only 400 kilograms of the inoculum. Oh, wow. So That's significantly less. <laughs> exactly. So it is rooted in tradition, but it is not traditional. Previously, it was, you know, it was believed that the cow dung, fermented cow dung or compost, they are providing the nutrients. So that's why you needed 10 tons, 15 tons, 20 tons. But the understanding now, and that is the, the science part of it, what we are doing is in sync with uh, science, the natural farming methodology adopted in Andhra Pradesh. We follow some universal principles, which are same in USA, Europe, Australia, Africa, any country. And what we understand, what we have tried to uh, decipher from the principles of nature is that photosynthesis is the key. Plants are feeding the soil. So that's why our first principle that we have put for ourselves in natural farming is have a green cover throughout the year. So 365 days green cover is our objective. And also have diverse crops from at least four functional groups. The more, the better. So our farmers are using some 12 crops, 15 crops, 18 crops. So have a living root in the soil at all times and diverse crops. So this is the fundamental principle because how do you if you maximize photosynthesis, the rate of photosynthesis per unit area, then it triggers the soil biology and enables the plants to get all the nutrients by themselves. The cow dung based formulations, we call them as biostimulants. They are not biofertilizers. So we have a seed coating which is made from fermented cow dung, cow urine, lime, fermented for 12, 12 hours, 
Some people do it for three days. So there are different practices. So the seed is coated with this fermented liquid. Then uh, we have a soil amendment, which is again made from cow dung, cow urine, molasses, jaggery we call it, and lentils, and a bit of soil. So that the soil microbes are mimicked in this uh, inoculum. So that all that we require around 400 kgs uh, per acre, which is applied along with the seed. Then we, when the plant germinates, plant is growing, then we have this liquid inoculum, which is uh, you know used every once in 15 days, once in 20 days, depending on the crop. So to the root zone ones, to foliar application. So throughout the crop cycle, from sowing of the seed till the harvesting, there is an application of uh, the biological stimulants or biological inoculum. But the purpose, they are not providing any nutrients to the plant. They are stimulating the soil uh, biology, stimulating the soil microbes. The food is being provided by the plants themselves. So through the root exudates, or once the plants are harvested, the root mass itself is food for the microbes. So this is a third principle is like a catalyst. I would call this as a, you know, because now some farmers are reporting after five years, they're saying we don't need to use this. Really? Already the soil is rich. Yes. In fact, day after tomorrow, I'm going to see a field where a farmer is raising a rice crop, paddy rice, and uh, he's in the fourth year, and he has not used any bio, uh, biological input this year, except the in the initial part. But for the, growing the main crop, they've not used any input because soil has become so good. Yeah. So you see the principles were following and minimizing the tillage. That means not to disturb the soil, not keep the soil covered with a crop residue, use botanical pesticides for pest management. We have only one red box and that says no synthetic fertilizers, no synthetic pesticides, herbicides, weedicides. So all of the eight use indigenous seed. They don't have to buy seed from the market. Farmers' own seed is the best or the traditional varieties are the best. As you said, see, these principles can be applied in USA or, uh, you know, in India. But the practices are very specific to India, to Andhra Pradesh. So this technology is science-based. We follow universal principles. But practices are local. Practices are based on people's preferences, what works there. But should be in harmony with the principles. And it is rooted in our tradition. Yeah. Rooted in tradition, but it's not traditional. It is the future. Yeah. The technology is, you know, technology of the future. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, when they think of tradition, they think of it as a static thing. Yeah. But just like what you're doing today, you're contributing to that future tradition, right? Where generations from now will look back and consider that part of that linear process of what tradition has been and will be towards the future. We can get really caught up in trying to recreate the past instead of thinking about the world is different today than it was three, four, five hundred years ago. And uh, we have resources and capability that uh, wasn't available. And just because uh, they didn't, the past didn't have those things doesn't mean they wouldn't have used them. So right. it's our yeah. responsibility to keep that march of progress going forward. I think each generation comes with solutions based on the knowledge available to it. Yeah. 
So future generations should not be locked into that. Every generation should evaluate. And then is it working? Because science is always disruptive. It overthrows the you know, previous paradigms and that's how science moves forward. So there are, of course, universal laws are there, but then there's so many, uh, but every generation has to test what is, uh, you know, if there's more knowledge available, you may come up with, uh, you know, different solutions. And the problems are also different because at that time, the population density was not so much. There was a lot of forest area which could be covered to, you know, increase the production. We are not in that position now. We have desertified our lands. We have degraded lands. And whatever is available is also degrading on an annual basis. So the situation is very different now. So we need a solution which is appropriate for us and appropriate for a long time to come. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, This content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. See, there is a maladjustment between the principles of nature and what we have been doing through the industrial agriculture. You know, the desire to control nature. So this maladjustment needs to be rectified. So our technology is, uh, (laughs) to repeat, technology is rooted in our tradition, but it is modern. It is very low cost. It is also something which farmers can do by themselves. They are not, you know, part of any supply chain. They don't have to buy anything. It can be produced by them, produced in the village. And most important, for me, this is most important. Once the soil condition improves, their inputs also come down. So it's not a situation where, you know, farmers used to use one bag of fertilizer, synthetic fertilizers. They now have to use 12 bags of synthetic fertilizers. So it's the reverse. If they're using, uh, you know, 400 kgs of the inoculum or one ton of the inoculum, after four years, it should come down to 500 kilograms. That's the best part of the technology. Yeah, it's amazing. So I'm guessing based on the growth that you are meeting those expectations for productivity, correct? Oh, yes. Not only... We, we also evaluate it. We have independent assessments made on, uh, on a season, season to season. We have two seasons in India. One is the monsoon, summer monsoon, I mean the southwest monsoon, and then the winter season. So we have independent, we have the largest evaluation done. So we have been, uh, now this is the uh, fourth year of that evaluation. And we are finding when we compare farmers who have, transition to natural farming versus farmers who are doing conventional, our yields are superior in most of the crops. Our costs are much less in all the crops. So the net incomes of our farmers increase by from 60% to 300% for some crops. Oh, wow. There was one crop which registered a 
600% increase in net income. Wow. You're absolutely right. The farmer's behavior change is guided by what neighboring farmers are doing. It's not, you know, what some expert is saying, X expert or Y expert is saying. They believe other farmers, they see the results. But you see, our the reason for uh, why, how we have been able to reach these numbers is we believe in the farmers. So from among the farmers, we pick up the best practicing farmers as champion farmers. They are our farmer trainers. So way back in the year 2016, when I initiated the program, we did a search for these best practicing farmers across the state. And over two years, we were able to identify around 800 to 900 of them. And we requested them to incubate the program. So they go to a village. They have to convince farmers to try it out. And how do they convince farmers? All of them take a piece of land, plot of land, on lease in this host village. And they tell the farmers that, look, in this plot of land, I will practice all the natural farming practices. And you do your own work. You you use the synthetic fertilizers. And you watch my crop. End of the season, after harvesting, we'll again have a discussion on that. So they're proving on the field that this crop yields are better, costs are less, and soil is improving. So though no theory. Otherwise, how can, you know, from 40,000 doubtful farmers, how do I get 630,000? And this year, my target is to get 1 million farmers enrolled. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, so it, and I'm not giving any incentive. I'm not telling farmers that, uh, you know, I'll give you a financial incentive if you enroll in my program. We're not doing that. I'm also not saying that I'll compensate you for any yield loss. I'm also not saying if you transition uh, and I'll purchase your produce at a premium price. I'm not saying that. So in spite of that, farmers are moving into this is because of the basic strength of this uh, technology, but it takes time. A farmer's journey, according to us, is could be anywhere from three to five years yeah. to, to make this transition from industrial agriculture to natural farming. Yeah. Now, I, I imagine that there's been some significant peripheral effects, right, uh, in terms of water quality um, and you know runoff and things like that. Has there been any assessments of that or is it just kind of, yeah, we notice it without any actual data on that? No, both, both are true. We, when we go to the farmers, anecdotal evidence is very strong. because They are telling us that, uh, you know, previously the, when it rains, the entire soil would run off, but now and all the water is going inside. But we are measuring soil runoff differences between natural farming and conventional agriculture. I have a very big science team. So we have uh, PhDs in agriculture, postgraduates. So we have a very large science team, which uh, you know does research, both in-house research, but also in collaboration with international organizations. We have collaboration with the World Agroforestry Center, we also have a partnership with University of Reading, UK. They're working with us. And uh, in US, the Woodwell Institute, 
and University of Tufts. So there's a joint uh, project on uh, this impact assessment. So we have a very big team of scientists. So where we measure these things, water uh, percolation, how much, what is the soil porosity, what's happening to the uh, moisture you know, in the soil, water holding capacity of the soil, water infiltration rate. So biodiversity, we found that the earthworm population, for instance, so between a natural farming field and a conventional field, so the earthworm population was seven times higher in uh, in the field with uh, natural farming. Or we've been doing count of birds, you know, birds coming in the morning, afternoon, evening. So we have a study which shows this. So increase in biodiversity, then uh, crop water requirement. We find that our in natural farming, we require 50% less water. And that is so significant for farmers who've been struggling with uh, getting water for their crops. So we have a very strong uh, science team, which we are expanding. Actually, our vision is that every village, we should nurture a farmer scientist. Why can't farmers be scientists? Yeah. We have 10,000 odd villages. So our idea is to identify the innovative farmers there and build their capacities to understand the science, do research on the local issues, so that we have 10,000 scientists working on issues of, uh, you know, which is uh, locally important and also train people. So you're right, we, all this, uh, I don't call them peripheral, they're also equally important. So what is called as ecosystem services or environmental benefits, we measure them. But we also intuitively, we can see that uh, I have a farmer who told me that, uh, you know, he's so happy. And he goes to his uh, farm at uh, 4 a.m. in the morning. And he says, so many birds come to my plot of land. So I love, love to hear them sing, love to hear their noises. So I just go early in the morning and that's the best part of my you know day, best part of starting my day. Yeah. I also feel that we should not, uh, you know, underestimate uh, anecdotal evidence or wisdom. Not just believe that something is coming in a peer-reviewed research article. So that also puts a distance between farmers and uh, so-called scientists. Yeah, I really love that idea of scientists or farmer scientists. It reminds me a lot of what Cuba did in the... I believe it was the early 90s, where they, they worked with the Organoponicos, uh, if you're familiar with that. Uh, yes. And they, it, was, it was really interesting because the idea, despite it being Cuba, was basically to give the power to communities to know what was best, but just give them the tools. And this sounds a lot like it. It's less bureaucratically driven and more uh, about giving the resources to people to do what they think is best for uh, their local ecosystem. Absolutely. I think that's the only way this will work and that's the only way it will scale up. Because you see, uh, what happens is when a farmer is changing from a conventional industrial agriculture system to natural farming, the initial, you know, there's a lot of derision, you know, or what foolish thing you're doing. We're spending so much money and even then we're not making enough and you think you're cow dung and all this... uh, practices will will give you these solutions. So the women's self-help group, the collectives, they play a very critical role in the transition system. They support the 
you know, within a group. So typically a group has 10 members. So one member changes first, typically. So the group doesn't discourage her or her husband or her son. So they support them. They said, look, we are with you. You have decided that this is good. And anyway, you're experimenting with a small piece of land. We, If it is successful, we'll also follow. So the support system is very important because you see this, uh, the technology, uh, because agriculture is their lifeline. It's not some, uh, you know, not a hobby. It's a lifeline. If the crop fails, then, you know, the family's uh, entire uh, future hangs in a balance. I remember, uh, and these are a lot of issues between, uh, within the family. The husband may, may not agree with his wife. Wife wants to do natural farming. Husband doesn't want to do that. So there's a lot of dis- discussion within the household, argument, fighting. Then the group goes there to the household, you know, counsels the husband. So they find a solution. There are cases where the son wants to do it, but father doesn't want to do it. So we had a case where the son was very keen because he had attended our training program or meetings and uh, he wanted to practice natural farming. And the father became wild. He said, you want to risk the entire uh, family's uh, food security system. I'll not allow you to do it, but you're so adamant. So you do it in half acre of land. So they have two and a half acres. So he gave him the worst patch of land. And he also told him, you do it alone. So he didn't allow his wife also to work on his field. So daughter-in-law was to work with the father-in-law, mother-in-law in in their two acres. The son was allowed to, you know, allow his small children to help him during their, uh, after they come back from school. And you won't believe it. In this half acre of useless piece of land, the son was able to produce a bigger crop than the father with the two acres of land. <laughs> That's amazing. So there is a lot of uh, discussion, debate, disagreement within the household. So that's why it's a slow process. And so therefore, it's not financial incentive. You require a different kind of support system. You require somebody to say, no, no, you're doing good work. Please do this. We are with you. So this kind of, uh, and, you know, to uh, mediate within a household. And since we work through the women's self-help groups, uh, typically uh, when the woman goes and uh, talks about agriculture, the husband will say, what do you know about it? You know, I've been uh, buying, getting the fertilizers, getting, you know, spending so much, working so hard. But so there is a, uh, you know, uh, imbalance or what shall we say? It was typically seen as husband's prerogative or the man's prerogative. Uh, But how, through the women's self-help group, the women in our rural areas have been able to create that space for themselves to be able to to negotiate. Many cases I know, know, very like a Solomon solution, Solomon type of solution, they divide the land in half. One half the wife does what she wants, other half the husband does what he wants. And then end of the crop season, they have to sort of decide who is right. So 99% of the time, the wife is correct. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's interesting. I, I, it speaks to the fact that uh, it's so important to have these communities, right? This yes, community of support. Right. And I think uh, in an increasingly digitalized world, that can be hard. And I, I think 
having this kind of collective is really important. And as much as we want to think of everyone should convert to natural farming as soon as possible, the reality is that these have to be slow and thoughtful decisions, right? No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, you said what we have done is a miracle, right? Because we got this part right. Because I've been involved in so many discussions, both within the country and internationally. People have not figured out how it should be taken to every farmer, what it takes for a farmer to change, what is the you know support system they require during this change process. So most of the discussion is you know whether chemical agriculture is good or natural farming is good, what are the yield differences. So it's more on a some scientific assessment, you know, on research. But how does how does this technology, how is this technology taken to every farmer? And how is the farmer supported to make it work, to complete the transformation, to complete this journey? So this part is what distinguishes our project from other programs. When you said the scale. I was able to think of the scale because we have these collectives and the collectives understand how these processes have to be taken forward. So this is the missing element in most of the efforts that I see. Otherwise, in six years, we have reached out to 10% of our population, whereas the world average is even less than 1% after some 30 years, 40 years. So this is the end. My vision is by 2031, that means another eight, nine years, I should reach 100%. I hope you do. <laughs> yes, we have to, because it's so important. It's not important not only for us, yeah. but also for important for other states in our country, other countries who are making this transition. So this technology, so the technology of scaling up, technology of reaching out to every farmer, you know, being with the farmer during transition, that is something I feel that in other contexts, in other countries, this has not been assessed adequately. Most of the emphasis has been on uh, proving the science or proving which technology is right. But to me, the technology is only 10%. 90% is in taking it to people and people will change the technology. So it's not that, you know, is something uh, you know, or, you know, very in uh, industrial agriculture. It's pretty top down. That means somebody in the university has arrived at the perfect formula. So there's a what's called as package of practices, and that has to go to every farmer. And the farmer is assumed to be a, you know, not having ability to think. Only great scientists can think, or companies can think. Yeah. And they give a formula. So you buy this, you buy that, you. Take a you 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 sort of uh, no matter how much debt you take, you buy all this, and then your crop will come. If the crop doesn't come, then they say you know it's an act of God. So our farmers didn't uh, follow our uh, recommendations. Nobody takes the blame. Yep. Whereas in my system, in our system, the person who is giving advice the farmer trainer, we call them as community resource persons, they are in the village. They are demonstrating their practices. So if anything goes wrong, you know, farmers can uh, 
sort of hold them accountable. So we are ready for that. Yeah. But uh, that's not true in a in another science which uh, believes in a top-down approach. So that is the difference. So just to sum up the this technology of taking it to every farmer is very, very important. And that part has not been figured out. Yeah. And the other important reason for us enabled, you know, because we have a audacious vision that we should cover every farmer. But that's because of the government support. So this is a program of the government and the government of Andhra Pradesh, the chief minister of Andhra Pradesh, he believes in it. He believes that every farmer should have access to this technology and the farmer decides whether this is good or bad, but everybody should have access to this. So that and the resources are provided by the government. The resources for the program are provided by the government. So the role of government in supporting this program is also very important for scaling up. The role of the farmers' collective, the women's groups, women's collectives, is absolutely critical. And the farmer-to-farmer you know, dissemination of knowledge. So we have a metrics that we should have one per 100 farmers. So one farmer trainer for 100 farmers. So I started with around 800, 900 trainers. Today I have 10,000 farmer trainers. So we have to, if I have to reach 6 million, it is I have to develop 60,000 champion farmers. My work is done then. Yeah. So it is knowledge intensive agriculture. It's an agriculture which believes in farmers' innovations, farmers' own uh, findings at, at that level. And then we believe in working with the best of science. So we want this, our technology that we are providing to farmers satisfies the you know, rigors of science. It is in harmony with nature. So we have these four or five elements. We have put it together that technology is one part. It is linked to our tradition, but it is in sync with modern science. The way the technology is taken, those champion farmers, they need to be nurtured, identified, nurtured, developed. The women's collectives are playing a critical role. And then we have a need for a long-term hand-holding support in a village. So we'll be present in a village for eight or 10 years till every farmer in a village. Typically, our villages have about 400, 500 farmers, farmer households. So we work with 400 to 500 farmers. It will take about 8 to 10 years for every village to change. So our program has these implementation elements which are, uh, you know, required for the for this situation. Having done this now for a number of years, yeah, is there anything that if you could go back you would do differently or is there something that I think maybe in your experiences you didn't think would be as big of a deal that now you would say, here's something to just be aware of if you're trying to to get into this type of work that is really important? I would say do things differently. This six years has been a great learning journey. So each year we have been evaluating what we have done, what needs to be improved. So it's not that we waited for six years. Each year, or it's sometimes more than once a year. Uh, but what has happened is in the six years, there's a very important technology breakthrough that we achieved, which will really make things easy for anybody else 
doing it. This is what we call as pre-monsoon dry sowing technology. You see, in the whole world, the typically farmers are able to take one crop in a year across the world on an average. We have 1.6 billion uh, hectares of land which is cultivated, of which uh, you know 0.48 billion hectares is degraded land, so no crops. So 1.12 billion hectares of arable land is giving us all the food. So the cropping intensity is 1.15. That means in 12 months of the year, you have crops in uh, four months of the year. Eight months, the land is fallow, barren soil, which is also contributing to climate change. So the breakthrough we had was in uh, 2018. We tried an experiment that whether we can grow crops through natural farming uh, technology, maybe tweaking the technology a little bit. Can we grow crops in hot summer when there is no rain or when there is very little rain? So we tried this in uh, 2018 with about just 11 uh, farmers, 11 uh, young farmers. We modified, we tweaked hacked as we, in the modern language, hacked the technology. <laughs> so we had diverse uh, seeds. We covered the soil with thick mulch. And then we put in, uh, you know, three to four times the quantity of uh, biostimulant that we had using previously. And uh, I was inspired by an Australian climate scientist, Walter Yana, whose lectures, uh, I mean, he gave lectures in USA in 2016 in Vermont. So I listened to them on YouTube. I listened to them several times. By now, I must have listened to them about 14. It's a four-hour lecture. <laughs> so then we yeah. tried this out and it worked. So we we got, uh, you know, uh, through help of FAO, UNFAO, Walter Yana visited us. He spent about 12 days with us. So we wanted to know how it works and what more could be done. So he has given, he gave us some suggestions. So today, this year, about 600,000 farmers in my, in our program have tested this pre-monsoon dry sowing. So they were able to increase the green cover from four months to six months. So before the rains, before the rains, rains typically come in the month of June, June, July, but we're able to sow the crop during the pre-monsoon showers. So this breakthrough is helping us in many ways. Typically, we have some 18, 20 kinds of different seeds, which we put in the soil before the main crop. So for a cover crop, you know, what's called as cover crop everywhere. Through this, the increase in soil fertility is incredible. Now, a further innovation in this is that a farmer in a semi-arid area where even one crop is risky. We are we are developed protocols, we have developed innovative farmers who are able to take three crops in a year. Oh wow. Even where it doesn't rain. Yeah, that's huge. Exactly. So what Walter explained to us was that the natural farming methodology is enabling the plants to harness water from the air. Do you know how much water is in the air? Not a lot, I would imagine. <laughs> no, 
it is equal to 10 rivers of water flying your over your head every day oh, jesus yes yeah. i also That's a lot of water. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's about 50000 parts per million and what we want is a few drops of this rivers of water to help our crops so of course exact science we still don't know but according to walter's estimate 60 to 80% of this water is coming is because the leaves are able to harness water from the air but this is possible only for the leaves which have uh, for the plant grown through uh, regenerative agriculture methods so there is a biological water supply water from film of the soil the mulch is so about 6 to 8 sources of water water identified for us so we will be conducting experiments to identify this so this technology breakthrough now enables us to you know even degraded lands can be brought to life in our state 6 million hectares is the land under cultivation but we have another 3 million hectares which is lying fallow lands are degraded farmers don't want to cultivate them because they are not sure of the crops but with this technology we are able to bring those lands back to life in the first year itself so to your question would you do anything differently i would say if i had this knowledge in the beginning definitely my program would have uh, you know done much faster but this is a very very important breakthrough and uh, we have lot of interest from countries in africa south america asia to come and learn Uh, replicated by themselves this uh, also has uh, another uh, implication if you are able to keep the land covered 365 days of the year you are also able to cool the soil surface and uh, reduce the evaporation losses reduce the heat radiated from the soil so we are working with uh, groups of uh, scientists groups of organizations across the world to bring a new discourse to the climate change discussions because everything is focused on uh, co2 see you know but we believe that cooling of the planet reversing climate change also requires the water cycle to be addressed so carbon cycle water cycle nitrogen cycle so all these different uh, cycles need to be addressed so focusing only on the carbon cycle is not a, a correct solution nature's cooling methodology how did uh, the planet cool down in between its uh, you know long history green cover has a very important role in that so what i believe andy is that the through regenerative agriculture through natural farming once we are able to ensure a 365 days green cover everywhere every acre of land we may also have found a solution to climate change i hope so so that is the most important reason for us to keep going of course we are already seeing very significant improvements in farmers livelihoods we are also seeing very significant improvements in the quality nutrient density of food and also you know soil carbon soil uh, uh, water conservation biodiversity so we see all these benefits already but we believe that uh, the bigger task for us 
is to establish how effective it is in uh, reversing climate change. Yeah, this has been fantastic. I, I feel like I've learned so much from listening to you talk. For folks that want to learn more about what's going on over there, I know you've got some social media. Do you have any books, anything else, anything that people could look up to learn a little bit more? Yeah, we have uh, our social media. I think we can send you the links. Vishy can do that. We also have uh, close to 800-odd videos on our practices, which are also there on our website. And is that on YouTube? Yes, on YouTube. We have a collaboration with uh, Digital Green Foundation. So they've been working very closely with us for more than, uh, I mean, even before this assignment, but ever since the program began in 2016. So Digital Green Foundation has been working with us and uh, we train farmers to make these videos. So that the... It's awesome. Yes, exactly. Because then, you know, it's not some professional making with some models whom, with whom the farmers can't identify. It is, they themselves see, you know, they see themselves in the videos. So the credibility of the video is better. So we have this uh, video dissemination on our website. There are uh, many resources. There are inspiring uh, case studies. The best way to learn is to come and see for uh, themselves. Because in this digital world, there's also a lot of, uh, uh, what shall we say, disinformation. So, (laughs) Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to see it. Uh, Yeah. So the best way is to come, see for themselves, you know, learn and see how you can contribute. Because this is something we believe that, you know, every every young person should know. Because young people need hope. And uh, we strongly believe that. And especially my message to the younger generation is that we need those methods, technologies, where each one of us is part of the solution. It's not that, you know, United Nations or world leaders are going to solve these problems. So every person, as a, either as a producer or as a consumer, has a role in fixing the climate. Yeah. So it's not, a, there's no magic silver bullet. Each one of us has a part to play. And the quicker we realize that and the faster we are able to get this done, then I think uh, we would have uh, done our bit for uh, ourselves and the future generation. Vijay, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you.